Passionate DJ Podcast, where it's all about becoming a better DJ through passion and purpose. And now, your host, David Michael. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast. I'm hanging out with Trip Turlington and Tony DeSaro. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Pretty good, pretty good. So we're just sitting here getting ready to record a complete freestyle episode. We're just going to talk about whatever's on our minds right now. And we've got a couple of topics that we've all kind of brought in some articles to look at. And I just wanted to spend a few minutes just, you know, on a couple of different topics and go see where it takes us. So um, one thing that I really wanted to start with was, you know, so as we record this, this is the day after April Fool's. And so we were just talking in the (laughs) pre-show chat about... You know, we're trying to pick news articles and stuff to go over, and we're not even sure which of them are actual news articles and which of them were tricks. <laughs> <laughs> Please let Sasha and Digweed be real. Please oh, that, let well, Sasha and Digweed be that's real. That's exactly where I want to start. That so, so if you go to Sasha, is it Sasha and John Digweed.com, I think it is. Mm-hmm. They have a sign-up page, and it's that's basically all it is. Enter your email address and, and what your birthday or something like that, and. There's no information about why they're collecting it, but you know, of course, everybody's in a fer- myself included, <laughs> in a frenzy about are they touring again? Are they putting an album together? What's happening? You know, um, so I don't know if this was a trick or not, but I will say that the page is still up, and I just signed up for it today, and it works. So something appears to be happening, and it's not, you know, it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility because. Um, they did reunite for a, a B2B set recently. What was it? Uh, yeah, it was Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday, Ministry mm-hmm. of Sound, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, actually, I have an article here, Dan- Dancing Astronaut. Uh, let's see. Just so happens that both artists will be at this year's, this year's Coachella, which will be April 14th. So I'm wondering if they're going to do it again, because I think they're booked separately, but I wonder if they're going to, like, if they're working on a thing you know, to start touring together or something. One could only hope so. But like I was reading in one article, you know, Sasha, Sasha, Digweed is Digweed, but their names together carry more weight than they do separately. They really do. They're yeah. they're almost like a, a group in themselves, you know, even though they, they're referenced by their own names. There's just something about putting those two names together that, you know, it, it brings back a particular image oh, yeah. and sound and oh, yeah. even approach really to, to this kind of music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of both of them, but yeah, I mean, just putting both of them together, I, 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 I one of my favorites was Communicate. That oh, was oh. right behind you on vinyl, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, I still have mine as well. I just, oh, I love the original Northern Exposure mm-hmm. mix, uh, which goes for like I don't know something well into four figures on eBay if you can find a vinyl LP copy of it, but. Uh, luckily, I was able to find it on SoundCloud or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. But there's just the way that it was put together, you know, when they put together those mixes back in, the, especially in the 90s. And, you know, that's what we know were, as Progressive House. Yeah. Right, and it was put right. together like an album. Mm-hmm. That, But I mean, it was not an ending album. You know, there wasn't like track one, track two, track three. It was like a DJ mix as we recognize it. But yep. it just. You want to talk about telling a story. I mean, if there's anybody that ever actually pulled that off, it's those two. Yep, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that that's an actual thing because I would I 
that that would be like a bucket list item for me because I never I've never seen them together. No, right no, nope, uh, I've never seen Sasha really at all. Yeah, hopefully mm. that changes. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely have to put that on the on the list and no. make it happen for you. It's an experience seeing those guys together. You can when, sit there for four hours, and when you, when they're when the fourth hour is up and they end, it didn't even seem like four hours went by. Mm. Like, but, 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 <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not done yet. <laughs> when did you see them together? Uh, many times. Um, when was the first time? The first time I saw Sasha was 1998 in Orlando. I saw him by himself. The first time I saw him and Digweed together was um, 1999 at, uh, well, which is now Miami Music Week, but then it was, you know, the Music Conference Week. They they played oh, at Alter together, but but that's not really the setting you want to see Sasha and Digweed in. Yeah. You know, you want to see them in an intimate club setting. So uh, we went to the Crow Bar that same week, and that was the first time that I would saw them. Um, and then I saw, obviously, a couple of the Delta Heavy tours, um, one in Columbus, Miami um, Ultra did a thing called Carry On, which was in the uh, the Miami Arena, and man, it was it was uh, it was Uncle Sasha and Digweed, uh, Hernan Catano, and somebody else. But it was you know Ultra ended at midnight, and the Ultra Carry On went to five in the morning at the Miami Arena, and it was man, it was an experience. Yeah, I, I bet. I mean, that's just giving me chills just thinking right. about it. That sounds like a pretty awesome. Uh, Any chance awesome I get weekend. to see those guys, man, I, I I'm there to see them. That's what got me into electronic music. You know, the the Renaissance CD set, and I've said it many times on this show, but seeing those guys play a you know an extended set, you know, three or more hours is just. Mind-blowing. It really is. It took me until, I think it was two years ago, to finally see Digweed. And that was at, in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And that was that, uh, that the year when it got rained out and it was like freezing cold. Uh, and and was... I, I, made, I held out as long as I could. I was like, you know, 35, 40 minutes in. I finally had to go. I was soaked head to toe and I was <laughs> miserable. But like I said, that was like a bucket list thing for me. Like, I'm going to be here as long as I can. <laughs> But it it was great because the stuff that he played that night was just, it was everything that I'd hoped to hear John Digweed play. And I was mm-hmm. like, wow, this is great. And so he was booked again and played main stage this past year. And when we heard him on the main stage, I don't know if it just, the, the sound was too much mm-hmm. or if he just played a more techie set. But all I heard was bass and I couldn't really... Get those melodic sounds. Yeah, you know, I, I couldn't get lost sounds. in the you know the hypnotic effect of of what Digweed's music does for yeah, me. Absolutely. You know, so I was kind of a little disappointed that the good weather day was was not the better of the two sets. So I, I don't know, like I said, if that's a product of him being on that stage, you know, whether it was the sound or if he just played differently. Mm-hmm. And it was a different time too. It was during the day, whereas mm-hmm. the other was at night. But yeah, it, don't get me wrong, it was still still a blast, but. Like I said, like even when I saw him at Ultra on the main stage in uh, in 2000 on the beach, just wasn't the same as seeing them in that intimate setting. It's mm. it's, it's a whole other ball game because I mean they, those guys, their first hour is just 
getting setup. going. You know what I mean? Like their second and their third and their fourth hours where it's really at. Foreplay. Yes. <laughs> Great way to describe it. So do you guys like have any idea what happened there? Like why did they stop touring together and stuff? Is there is there a reason? You, I you guys have any really don't that? know other than I know they both wanted to do solo projects. Yeah. But, um, you know. Because it's not like, even now, it's not like the stuff that they play is vastly different. Right. I mean, they, they both have their own flavor for sure, but yeah. it's not like they're incompatible. Right. You know, no. They're, right. Yeah, no, I, I, I never heard any any reason for it. You know, just over time, you know, instead of seeing Sasha and Digweed, you just saw them, you know, separately. I I have, I, I talked to, um, uh, it was Avicii Sound Tech when we did a couple shows with him. He had, he was also one of the techs for Sasha and Digweed. Mm. And, you know, I was talking to him about it during a sound check one time and he had, uh, he had told me, that it was a lot of promoters. After a while, Sasha and Digby weren't pulling the numbers that they needed to pull to pay them what they were worth. Mm. You know what I mean? So Sasha and Digby together was just too expensive for promoters or for you know companies to make their money back on. So them separately, sure they can make their money, but you know. Oh, so you think example, it was like a numbers say, thing? Let's say they're they want ten grand a piece. You know, well to put twenty grand on on Sasha and, and Digweed mm. together in a show just didn't make sense dollar wise for promoters. Because I never they even thought of really that. Pulling those numbers, but you know, ten grand for each one, sure, that's it's a hmm. lot easier to do, but. You know, then again, who really knows but those guys and the people behind their scenes, why, other than solo projects. We brought up uh, Avicii. Did you hear he's retiring? He mm. just announced this, mm-hmm. what, a day or two ago? Yeah, he's retiring from touring. Yeah, he said, I've decided this 2016 run will be my last tour and last shows. Let's make them go out with a bang. This is uh, DJ Mag reporting this. He did not rule out making a return to performing in the future, but said that he plans to take a break from music. One part of me can never say never. I could be back, but I won't be right back. So we, we've brought him up before, you know, where he was having, I think, some health issues mm. um, in regards to, I don't know if his lifestyle choices or, you know, just the the busy life of a mega star touring DJ. Sure. Um, but he's... It's interesting because he says, my, my path has been filled with success, but it hasn't come without its bumps. He wrote, I've become an adult while growing as an artist. I've come to know myself better and realize that there's so much I want to do with my, with my life. I have strong interests in different areas, but there's so little time to explore them. Um, yeah, let me see. It really, yeah, he said he realized he needed to make the change that he'd been struggling with for a while. So he's basically saying, like, it, it almost sounds like almost a touch of like Michael Jackson syndrome, you know what I mean? Where it's like, didn't get a chance to finish growing up right, right. kind of thing. I mean, not as extreme as that, obviously. Sure, but sure, sure. So he's like, I've missed out on all these just regular ass experiences that people my age get to go through. Right. You know, I read a couple of quotes like that. Yeah. The Beatles were notorious for it. Like they, they when they would get, uh, uh, interviewed, you know, at times, well, what do you, what do you miss? Or what, what do you not like about being, you know, a world superstar? I think it was John Lennon who said, riding the bus, you know, mm. I, I can't do There's that. simple things yeah. in life. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, is, as far as Avicii, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, none of us know him. So, I mean, we don't have that, that, uh, luxury of, you know, uh, 
of knowing him personally and being able to, you know, talk to him on an intimate level. But I mean, the dude has been wildly successful. He's made a shit ton of cash, you know, and it's just, you know, when you're, when you're as young as he is, cause he can't be what? 25, He's 26 26? going on 27. Yeah. So like, you know, when you're at that point and I mean, we can only speculate how much money he's made, but I think it's safe to say it's a lot. Um, you know, if he's got the ability to take that break and say, you know, I want to go do things, mm-hmm. then cool, go do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you say you're talking about how much money he made. Yeah. And, you know, this this idea of these DJs making these just massive paychecks for, for single shows mm-hmm. is something that's being brought up a lot in the argument about, you know, there, there's a lot of hubbub right now about is kind of the, the quote unquote EDM bubble about to burst is dance music dead. You know, you're starting to see these articles. What was it? Miami Herald, uh, was talking about ultra and the poor attendance and, and, you know, is the dance music craze slowing down? And that's one of the things that they bring up is this like these massive fees that are required to bring in these acts and you know, has it gotten too big for its britches kind of thing? Absolutely. Uh, and, and I don't, I don't go to the huge festivals. I, I, uh, I love movement in Detroit. Um, but even that is, can sometimes be cost prohibitive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's what at 300, 350 bucks to get in the door now. Like, yeah. you know, yeah, it, it depends on when you buy. But. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But you know, and, and I get it. I mean, all of these bigger names, they cost money. And then that, that, you know, that has to be, you know, made up for by the consumer. But there's going to be a point where all of these mega festivals are going to price themselves out of everybody's price range. I mean, and especially if you want to attend multiple festivals throughout a year, you better make good Mm. money or know somebody. Like, otherwise, you're just picking one. And, you know, if there's that many huge festivals out there competing for everybody's one experience, you know, then it's, it's not the same as, you know, in your in your local scene, you know, if there's four Saturday nights in any given local scene and each Saturday night is taken up by a specific promoter, but each one is keeping it pretty modest and doing five, ten dollar shows. And, you know, maybe one of them does a twenty dollar show or twenty five dollar show because they brought a bigger act than the other three. I think everybody can still afford 50 bucks a month, mm-hmm. you know, and then your drinks or whatever, you know, but and that's all that's all still very doable. But within the course of a summer, if you if you choose three different festivals that you want to go to and each one is going to be three to what, $500 to get in? Well, that's it, just ticket though. That's what I'm saying. Right. So then, and all of, none of those festivals are at least in our area. So let's assume that you have to, you know, throw down mm-hmm. on some You travel. treat it like a vacation. Right, yeah. exactly. And We all know, know what vacations cost. Right, right. You know, and you throw in, you know, your, your lodging, your gas and food and everything else. Well, and then you, you can, you take into consideration that the primary demographic for most of these festivals are like college age kids. Exactly. So they've. It's not something that their parents are going to go 
in on, but (laughs) they're not old enough to necessarily afford doing that all the time. You know, they're probably in college and and that kind of thing. So it's, then you end up catering to the rich kids. And then we were talking about, Tony and I went to brunch and we were talking a little bit about this where a lot of these mega clubs and and things they're relying on things like bottle service right. to be able to pay these massive fees right because if they can get a couple of you know well to do groups in there then it kind of pays for everything there was um you, you know a, a show in Columbus that I attended and the the club is no bigger than therapy cafe which um for the listeners that don't know therapy cafe is a 225 person capacity venue um so it's a really, really small place, and they're bringing you know a headliner, said headliner that's ten grand. Mm-hmm. I mean, these clubs are doing fifteen to twenty grand in bottle service, you know. So they're making set amount after the DJ is paid with bottle service, and that the ticket included, you know, like so all the money that they're making off of the ticket is just pure profit. Because they paid for their DJ via the bottle service and made an additional what five grand in yeah. bottle just bottle service alone. That doesn't include people walking up to the bar and getting drinks, you know. So, yeah, bottle service really does, man. It, it's, it's an insurance marker for those clubs. Well, and and that's I think that's the for me. I just it, it is it's a, it's a bubble. You know, and and it's artificially inflated. Mm-hmm. You know, it, when you when you're paying for something based off of this, and not not the actual consumer, mm-hmm. then eventually it's just not it, that's not sustainable. Because what happens when these people that are you know taking care of the cost of everything are mm-hmm. no longer interested, right? Or move on to right. the when, next big. When it's thing. not cool yeah. anymore, right? Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> well. Uh, I'm going to butcher the name, but the it's the CEO of Dancing Astronaut. So it's uh, Cynthial Shadambaram, something like that. I, I probably butchered that, but um, puts it like this. They say, you see someone DJ and throw his hands up and fireworks in the background, and that experience is replicated 100 times. So how is it changing for you? What's the selling point unless you're a super fan? So basically they're saying this people are getting burnt out on it because how many times you're going to go out and spend, you know, a couple grand on bottle service (laughs) to see the same show over and over again, you know, that's obviously going to be a passing fad for, for a large, you know, demo. And then everybody else is just, if they're there for the music, it's not, you're not getting a new experience. So why are they going to keep, it's not sustainable, I guess. Right. And even across festivals, like or or big shows, mm-hmm. you know all of these big, huge, major names—they're not changing anything. Yeah. So even if you pay five hundred dollars to go to this thing, three fifty to go to this one, and then twenty-five dollars to go to this one, if it's the same person, they're just replicating the same set from one one spot to the next, to the next, to the next. Nobody's not nobody. I'm sure there are a few, but you know, there nobody's pushing the envelope there, and you just paid you know, a thousand dollars over the course of a couple of months to follow this person around the same thing. just to see the same exact thing. And I get it. I mean, when you're on the road, there's not a whole lot of time and you know, it's, it is quicker, it's easier and it's more uh, efficient to play the same set, mm-hmm. you know, across multiple cities. But 
you know, I, I just keep going back to we know enough of those people that go to multiple festivals every year. And if they're seeing the same show every time, right. you know, mm-hmm. why? You know, just pay once to go see it. <laughs> you uh, know, like as much as I love some of my favorite bands, you know, like if, for example, I love Pussifer. If nobody's mm-hmm. heard of this, uh, it's a uh, uh, side project for Maynard James Keenan, who's the lead singer for Tool and, Tool Perfect, and Circle. Perfect Circle. Perfect yeah. Circle, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's really weird. It's avant-garde. It's like, you know, rock meets electronic, kind of, sort of, but with a sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, and as much as I love that and as unique as those shows are, the only time I have ever seen Pussifer more than once in the same year was when I knew that the show was going to be different. So like Mm. I would catch one in Cincinnati or, or Columbus and then go catch it again in Chicago it beca- and they made it a point to say every show on this tour will be different. It will not be the same show twice. Mm. So that, you know, if, if an artist is going to go that far to tell you, hey, we're not replicating anything. So if you want to follow us, you're going to get a different experience every I, time. I think it's frustrating because like that that kind of thing makes more sense for a band because, they, I mean, they're they're playing the damn music like every time. Right with their hands, you know what I mean? Right. Like, so they, there's a certain amount of preparation and, and stuff that goes into that. Sure. And so for them to say, Hey, this, this tour, we're, we're starting from, you know, zero, everything's going to be completely different. This is a new show. That's a really cool. That's a really big deal. Right. Whereas if you have like a DJ who's already not making the music live on the spot, right. It, it, it can feel really lazy you know what I mean? To people like us who are like, why, why are you not giving a different experience? Right. You know, it, right. it, it feels it's autopilot on top of autopilot, you know? It's, yeah. And, and, and so that kind of goes back to one of our previous episodes. I think it was the last one where we were yeah. talking about uh, reading your crowd. And I understand that, you know, reading a crowd of 200 in a, in a intimate club is going to be a hell of a lot different than reading 10,000 in the middle of, you know, a, a field or, you know, an amphitheater or something. But, yeah. um, but as somebody who had to learn the whole reading a crowd and, and get comfortable with that, you know, like I said, in that episode, I started out, you know, with pre pre-made sets and, you know, then I would play that pre-made set for like my next four to six shows. And after those four to six shows, well, I'm kind of sick of this set, Mm -hmm. you know, so I need to put something else together. So actually doing that, you know, on a much grander scale, like I, I would get bored. Like, Mm, and I mean, that's just me as a, as as an artist. I, Mm -hmm. I, I just, I would get bored with that. Like, and so t- t- I would, I would be the one who totally deviates. Like, <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, there's probably a lot, a lot of anxiety that takes a, a role there too. Oh, because I, no I mean, if you're playing in front of, you know, a hundred thousand people and making a million dollars or whatever it is, I know that's an exaggeration, but like, it's like, well, I don't want to mess up in front of all these people. You know, I mean, they, they have expectations sure, and, and sure. we kind of talked about before how, you know, a lot of these people didn't come up DJing. They found themselves DJing because they produced a hit or, right. or whatever. And so it, not that that really gives them a pass, you know, I mean, we, sure. we'll, we'll judge artists based on their artistry and that's the way it is. But, 
I, I see why it happens. I, at least I feel like I do. Right. Um, oh, I, yeah. I mean, and, and, and I, I don't, I don't argue with it. I just don't put my money into it because there are going to be those people who don't mind, don't care and are perfectly fine, you know, putting their money into that, into that product. And, you know, for them, okay, great. But for me, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't do it that way. I don't think I want to put my money into a product that, that continuously perpetuates that. So I just don't. <laughs> Agreed. Well, I'm looking over the Miami Herald article. It's titled, On the Eve of Ultra Music Festival, The Dance Music Craze is Slowing Down. Do you guys feel like that's the case? I mean, do you feel like this kind of wave we've been riding for a while is is coming to an end or is this just is that just an ultra thing do you want my honest answer or my snarky answer <laughs> yes <laughs> i think it's something that we've all said i've told you so from the beginning because we knew that when i say we i'm talking us it's been been in this music before it became popular and cool um once the coolness wears off and it's not the cool thing, all those people are just getting tired and bored of it. But the ones that really fell in love with the music and, you know, it opened other doors for them to pursue electronic music outside of big room EDM, that's starting to happen. So the sm- hopefully the smaller events and, and, you know, I can give an example like Eric Prids, for example, you know, like how are you going to put him in a venue that holds 200 people? That's what he, you know, that's what he's been doing. He's been doing smaller clubs. Well, now he's doing the, you know, the, what is it, Eric Prids 3.0, whatever. But you couldn't put that guy in a club with 200 people because he pulls a thousand heads. But now, you know, I feel, hopefully it just brings it back to the smaller clubs is what I'm trying to say, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I've always kind of thought that, I mean, we were talking about this last night, actually, um, so we, we talked about First Fridays, you know, you, uh, Tony and his his production company throw a, a First Friday event. And so this happened last night and we're talking about how even if this sort of mainstream wave of EDM, even if it is dying down, th- this is something, it's a wave that we can ride as the quote underground or whatever, the people who care, however you want to put that terminology we'll be able to ride that for a while because it, it infuses the underground with a new strength, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I feel like that, that curve lasts a little bit longer than, than the mainstream curve, sure. you know, that cycle. So I, I, I have good feelings about, you know, where the rest of us are going to land on this. So uh, <laughs> that's kind of, you both kind of touched on where I was going to go. My snarky answer is I hope so. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I hope that the attendance dying down is is one a wake up call to everybody who is in charge, and I'm saying that in in air mm. quotes. Wherever the money is, wherever the decision makers are, I hope they understand the mainstream wave is on its way down, and you know, so let's recognize that for what it is, make whatever adjustments we need to, and get back to our roots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That being said, now my honest answer is is that I think the EDM influence has been impactful enough on the mainstream. That's what I was going to say, impactful. Yeah, that that 
it's not going away. So we're still going to hear electronic sounds and dubstep beats and stuff like that in our car commercials and selling shampoo and whatever other, you know, crazy things that they find a use for it. It's still going to be in pop music because pop music has borrowed that from us and Mm -hmm. and made it their own now as well. Which is what pop music does. That's exactly. But as that whole segment of the music industry moves on. So then what is left is the underground. The root. Exactly. So as we talked about before, though, we can't just be complacent and say, oh, finally, we got our underground back. And then just, you know, go back to, okay, you know, it's just us and we're going to be purists and, you know, fists in the air. It's not a hard line. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we still need to, one, repair the damage you know, or not damage, I guess, get back to mm. what it is that that made the EDM underground the EDM underground and, and make that the safe space that it used to be for the misfits and the weirdos and, you know, all of all of us that, you know, tick off mm. of, you know, elect, electronic music in general. Um, I think the wave that we had was good. Absolutely. It, 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 whenever you get a big influx like that, it brings new people in. New hey, people. what you were saying earlier, um, how just EDM becoming so popular, it's opened the door for people to understand what they thought for the longest time was quote unquote techno. Right. You know, mm. like you couldn't, you couldn't, in a top 40 club, you couldn't play anything outside of hip hop and, 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 you know, a, even a, a commercial poppy song that related to us without people saying, are you going to play techno all night? Or, you know, <laughs> complain about that four on the floor. Now it's, you know, EDM has opened that door for those people, you know, and their mind a little bit to give it a chance and give it an opportunity. And now that they're sick of that big, room sound they're diving a little deeper because now they understand that four on the floor they're yeah. they're past the and they can we hear like all the other build, stuff that's going on what, how did they go we like big build-ups and disappointing drops we like long 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 build-ups and disappointing drops now they at least understand it and they can you know and and they're giving it a chance and hopefully the ones you know like we said that you know are into it for just that reason go away and the other ones that we've opened that door to you know dive deeper and say oh i really understand this you know and embrace it. And I don't think it's necessarily really any different than the way that any of the rest of us were introduced to this kind of music. I mean, you know, I I was into big hands-in-the-air unicorn rainbow trance when I got into this, and it's Mm -hmm. not the stuff that I listen to or play now, but it was there was something about that music that caught my attention. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I like like those 
that synthy thing that's happening. What is that? And right. I like that this beat never stops. Why is that? You know, there's this hypnotic thing going on. And I, there, so there were a couple of things that I picked up on amidst the just the the big wow factor of whatever you know lead that I heard or right. cool vocal track and you know those things tend to stick with you when you don't realize it. They're kind of almost like a subconscious thing and you start seeking more and more of that. And then it, it, you know, for, for people who are into it for the music, they'll stick around and keep exploring. And that's why I think that what we call the underground, uh, depends on these kind of waves to, to infuse it with new life and new blood literally, because, you know, I think it's also fair to say that when you have a big, you know, wave like this Mm -hmm. that that group of kids that comes in grows up and in a couple years their tastes are evolving but they were introduced you know when they were in college they heard this edm thing right and so that you know then they start looking for maybe different uh uh, types of that sound that exist in other genres that they're exploring and it kind of affects their entire you know musical interest from that point on you know right and I can remember when uh, when I used to throw parties on a regular basis, you know, we operated under with the understanding that the average lifespan of a raver, you know, was about two years. Mm. You know, somebody comes in, they party hard for a couple of years and, and you know, they, they when they first come in, they're all about it. They love it. You know, some may last a few years, you know, Mm -hmm. four years, whatever. But, you know, people who have the longevity, you know, for, you know, a decade plus are far and few between. Um, But it it comes back to exactly what you talked about. You know, what we're talking about is about a bunch of people who are college age and they are experiencing something new. They're giving giving something new a try and, and, and taking it all in and then, over time that becomes a part of them and you know and their and their life experience but then they've found something else and yeah. you know it just keeps moving you know where there's others of us that you know no this is what we like you know i yeah. mean i've mm-hmm. been all over the gamut you know i've <laughs> industrial you know clubs and uh you know top 40 clubs you know rap hip hop and all of that kind of stuff i mean i've my my musical taste as long as it's not country i love it you know but <laughs> At the end of the day, EDM, and and I say that in the term that I understand it, <laughs> you know, is is what I love, and it's always been what I love. But um, yeah, so the, the the hard part for us right now is as this mainstream thing kind of you know passes us by now, and now how do we keep the new blood coming in? And keep them interested. And then when they're not interested anymore, get the next wave in and the next wave in. And there will be some of those that stick with it. Maybe mm-hmm. just because they're like us and that's what they like and this is what they love and they'll they'll find their place in it. But, you know, for all of us to just say, yeah, awesome. The mainstream is gone. We're going back to the basement, you know. <laughs> no, I think electronic music is here to stay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not, it's not going anywhere. Yeah, no. you know all it, of the all of those articles. I saw a few of them over the last week. Is music or is EDM dead or is it dying? Yeah. Is the bubble bursting? Is the bubble bursting? Yeah, but the cool kids are getting older and moving been, on. What's that? The cool kids are getting older and they're moving on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
but there, yeah, there's an article on uh, Magnetic Magazine that the uh, headline was SFX sinks, Miami Music Week attendance is down, Vegas has had enough, and everything is just fine. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the tagline was "Don't believe the hype." That's what got us here in the first place. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, they kind of talk about the the same sort of thing. Oh, the EDM haters and <laughs> coming out and screaming right. and saying that the sky is falling and. And they're saying, "Hey, we're we're all going to be here to pick up the pieces. That's right. It's, That's right. it's fine. Yeah, you know. And what'll be really cool about that is, you know, when you've got if take Glitch Hop for example, if you look at some of the the pioneers and innovators of of Glitch Hop, if you listen to early Glitch Hop, man, none of it sounded like Pretty Lights back in like 2007, 2008. Yeah. It was all very avant garde and it was very weird and it was glitchy. Mm. And over time, as other more mainstream parts of EDM culture started picking that up and picking up their techniques. You know, there's guys out there like Ill Gates and Mr. Bill and Vespers and those guys who who have, you know, not just been uh, innovators in that genre and in sound design and, and arrangement, but they've also like really pushed the envelope in helping other producers pick that stuff up and, mm-hmm. and learn how to do it and learn how to do it for themselves and experiment for themselves. So as the mainstream wave started picking up all those techniques, well, then now we get modern quote unquote bass music, you know, yeah. instead of glitch hop because i can tell you you know i think i've said it on here before you know back in 2008 2009 you know i was playing glitch hop you know as it's as it was known back then and people were like are you gonna play something different like this is way too weird for me (laughs) but now if i play out glitch hop you know you know you get i mean people are eating it up but it's because today's glitch hop is not the same as you know the glitch hop of eight years ago yeah so um, it'll be where I was going with all of that was it, it'll be really interesting to see once the mainstream wave has kind of moved on to see what kind of innovation comes back out of, you know, electronic music, sound design and arrangement techniques and all of that. When there's nobody saying, how can I wash this down or, or uh, dilute it and yeah. make it more commercially viable, you know, instead you know, this is raw. This is grit. You know, let's yeah. let, let's do something cool with this. You know, I really wish that we had somebody in the studio that was like really present during the the like rise and fall of disco. <laughs> right. Because I mean, I, that would be a fascinating parallel to really put to this. But I just don't. I don't have the firsthand experience to really make that comparison properly, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I don't either, but it it is kind of a a similar thing. I mean, disco, like blew up out of nowhere in what, like the late seventies. And then by the like early eighties, everybody was all like, Oh, disco. (laughs) At least that's the way, you know, I heard my parents tell it. (laughs) 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 Disco like secretly came back as house music. Right. Right. Didn't it? I mean, there's a whole, you know, subgenre of house called disco house. (laughs) I love that stuff too. Oh yeah. House got me interested in disco. Really? Yeah. See, I was raised in a house on Motown and disco and all that stuff, so yeah. <laughs> My parents were into all the weird 80s stuff that replaced <laughs> disco. <laughs> so we were talking about, uh, you know, just kind of to wrap up the the ultra stuff. I mean, 
we were speaking of disco, they actually bring that up. Uh, EDM is over. It's like disco, says Vanessa Minx or Minkes. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. It's the former head of communications for the uh, now disbanded Opium Group. So they they owned like uh, Mansion Nightclub and, and so on. Miami Nightlife, pretty yeah. much. So they, she said, uh, in 2005, you could open your doors on a random Saturday night and make 150 grand. Those days are not coming back. In some ways, the music is falling victim to a success that appears to have peaked around 2013. Many of the music-loving clubgoers are the genres that are the genre's core audience have been alienated by spiraling entry and drink prices that put the cost of even a minimal night out well over $100, even as clubs cater to wealthy customers who spend thousands in VIP sanctums. So this is kind of what we were yep. talking about mm-hmm. with the VIP yeah. and bottle service and... Soaring DJ fees have become part of the ce- their celebrity cachet. Harris, the top earner, can command $400,000 at a luxurious Las Vegas nightclub, such as Omnia. Other elite acts make two hundred dollars to $250,000. I mean, that, that's just insanity to yeah. me. Yeah. I, I, I would have never thought that anyone would ever get paid that much to do this. <laughs> right. At all. Well, you know, it's just, uh, that's just fascinating to me. Like... $400,000, if you earn $400,000 in a year in the United States, you are the 1%. The 1% of is $400,000 and above. I think not, not everybody realizes that. Right. So he's, he's making that money on a set. That's right. just insane. Right. That's where it, come, it comes in that it's not the fact that he's a DJ. It's, it's the fact that this guy's got a hit record on the radio. and He's a brand. He's a brand. He's a presence that everybody wants to look at, you know? It, it just, it's it's kind of like when I I used to do bookings for um, people like Drama and those guys that did all of the reality shows on MTV. Yeah, you, you book those guys for depending on on their status anywhere from you know a thousand dollars to ten thousand dollars, and all these guys did were you know they would go in the club, they'd sit there in the VIP section. And maybe take a couple pictures with with some patrons in, in passing or sign a couple autographs. But people would pay ten, fifteen, twenty dollars to come in the club to stare at, yeah, you know, said reality TV show person, not uh, a list celebrity. But that's where I feel the DJ thing is gone. It's it's not Calvin Harris the DJ or Steve Aoki the DJ. It's these guys that have hit records on the radio that's everywhere in social media. You know, they're kind of a celebrity-ish, um, you know, whatever. They, they, they fit in that category. So that's yeah. what it's kind of boiled down to is when you, when you watch these intros and these guys... They have their intros, these big DJs, they have their intros. And the intro comes on and the big LED wall is playing and all of a sudden they appear from behind the decks. They stand up, throw their hands up, the crowd goes fucking nuts. And for what? It's because it's that person. Yeah. Not because that person just did a badass mix or that person, you know, it wasn't. They're there for the spectacle. Right. That's, that's, you know, what it's boiled down to. And that's what these guys are getting $200,000 for. Yeah. Not because they're world-class, phenomenal DJs, which some of them are, you know, but realistically they don't need to be. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And that's where I was going to kind of take that point and be like, you know, are we going to, is EDM going to cannibalize itself, at least in its current mainstream form? It's it's cannibalizing on itself because you got all of these people that 
are charging these exorbitant prices, right? Just to be there. Like, yeah. not to ask them to do something earth shattering or, or, you know, mind blowingly impressive. They just have to show up. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's taken a basic economics 101 knows that prices are sticky. So as this whole thing takes a huge downturn, all these guys are not going to say, well, I used to get a million to show up somewhere. You know, if I have to take 250,000, I don't think that's really (laughs) worth it anymore. You know, because I've already made 10 million by doing 10 shows in the last year. Yeah. Okay. So fine. And and that's all fine and good. And then those guys can, you know, move on and do whatever they're doing. But I, I think people are going to see all of this as a collapse when really it's just going to be a morph, you know, Mm -hmm. because you're not going to be able to unplug the influence that EDM has had on pop culture and mainstream music and all of that. Um, But it's not, it's already proven it's not sustainable in its current state and I'm okay with that. Well, you know, the other thing too is that we haven't even talked about yet is it's probably fair to mention that the last time we had a big uh, electronic music um, explosion here in the States, the internet was a baby. Right. You know what I mean? And so it was there, but it it wasn't the internet as we know it and as today's EDM fans know it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it things tend to be a little stickier today because we're all wired to each other and we can all find each other. You know, there's always a fan base for something out there because they're all connected and and there's not a geographical barrier for that anymore. I mean, there's bronies for crying out loud. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Bronies are a thing. Never would have known about them had I not have the internet. (laughs) (laughs) So, but that's kind of, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's... Thank you, Al Gore. (laughs) (laughs) Because of you, I know about bronies. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think that's fair to say, though. I mean, it's all those weirdos can find each other. That's right. That's right. That's right. Hey, I don't judge them. I'm just saying. I'm a weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're all weird in our own weird way. So, So, I mean, you know, you might say, I don't know, happy hardcore or whatever is dead. But no, there's plenty of happy hardcore fans and they're all finding each other. Right, right. You know what I mean? So that's just, I, I feel like we're we're in a different climate than we were last go round. Right. There's technologically and socially, it's just a different, it's a different picture now. Well, and I think another thing that will hopefully work out to our advantage is that because there was all of this commercial interest in electronic music that it made it socially acceptable whereas before we were all of the you know we were all considered the drug addicts because of the ecstasy problems and the club drugs and all of that stuff so then that's where we got you know targeted legislation like the Rave Act, and then you had all of the local and state municipalities that followed suit. Well, I mean, so had- even though those laws are still on the books, and they could decide to start paying attention to them again 
if they wanted to, but because EDM has blown up into what it is, more people are aware of it and they're, and they're more accepting of it. And they say, yeah, okay. So there's going to be those two, maybe three nightclubs in every city. That's going to be like, yeah, that's where you go. If you want to hear your techno or your drum and bass or your house music, and that's going to be okay. Whereas before, you know, we got pushed out of all of the clubs. Yeah. And that's where I came into the scene. I came in, you know, I came in like, what? Well, I heard there used to be something happening. (laughs) (laughs) What is this barren wasteland of rave music that I keep hearing about? Right. Yeah. Well, the other thing is like, I mean, we did have like the the kind of big beat thing happen with like like Fatboy Slim, Mm -hmm. Prodigy, and those acts came through. I mean, yeah. I would think that those brought a little bit of general acceptance yeah. or or maybe I'm wrong on that. Was that just those are the druggy well, kids that listen to that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I can remember, um, I don't remember what year it was. It was early 2000s though, but, you know, back then, you know, we'd had no MTV airtime for nothing. Yeah. You know, there that, that was, that didn't happen. Like, but... Uh, Fat Boy Slim. That's back was when on, MTV mattered. What's that? that yeah, was back, back when, when MTV, MTV mattered. mattered, and back when MTV was music television. <laughs> um, but I can remember when Fat Boy Slim. He was either on. Uh, I think it was the like Video Music Awards, something like that. But he did a uh, um, a performance of Praise You, mm. and everybody was like, "Oh, you know, all of us ravers were like, yeah, we made." but you know and then turn around and everybody else that was not a raver was like wow that was really interesting or it was a really good put well put together performance you know and it was it was relevant and it and it and it interested people so you know so now you know we got you know skrillex and dead mouse who are winning grammys and all that stuff and and kudos to them you know very cool because if nothing else even though those are the big commercial quote unquote pop guys in EDM and they're winning Grammys and all of that stuff, but that solidifies it and says, yeah, EDM made it here. Yeah. You know, you can't, you can no longer deny it and say that EDM, that electronic music is not actually music. Yeah. Because you still have, Every guy at a guitar center <laughs> doing guitar <laughs> lessons that says I can, I can make techno. It's not that. It's not that hard. It's stupid. It's not right. real music. <laughs> You're not using real instruments. Techno, techno. Get off techno. my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this uh, this Miami Herald article kind of wraps up by saying that you know they talk about how a lot of twenty and thirty somethings are opting for smaller lounges and clubs. Um, you know, moving away from the the beer festivals and mega clubs, and um, let's see. Yeah, they say pop music tends to go through cycles in which music styles bloated with success and saturating the culture give way to upstart underground genres. Punk and new wave supplanted disco and stadium rock. Hip hop and grunge inspired those bored by pop. House music started in gay, largely black and Latino clubs in the '80s, and then expanded to underground raves filled with blissed out kids. It says. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now EDM seems due for its own comeuppance. When anyone tries to make anything corporate, it's over. And 
they say that uh, this so this was the CEO of, of Dancing Astronaut says most of the clubs I go to don't play house music. She says it's all it all sounds the same. So it's it's interesting that you know we're just talking about you know the people who are really there and in it for the music stick around and the rest are going to move on to whatever it is that tickles their fancy, right, you know. And right. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, <laughs> not at all. And I, 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 I do think that as as things kind of splinter off and and people do opt for the smaller clubs and get back to a more intimate experience, like I, I think that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong; I used to love playing for two, three thousand people on any given weekend in our area. You know, back in the late nineties, early two thousands, but. You know, sometimes some tell me about that uncle trip. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to still do that. (laughs) But at the same time, some of, some of my favorite sets are the, the two to 300 people at therapy cafe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's a different experience and I, and I don't get me wrong. I mean, if you, if you ask me which one I'm going to opt for, I'll probably opt for the bigger crowd. Mm. You know, if you, if you give me the choice, hey, play for these 50 people or play for these 50,000, give me the 50,000. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't not value the smaller gigs because sometimes those are the most emotionally fulfilling for you as an artist that, you know, you've got this real small group of people that, you know, are digging what you're, if you can keep their, their interest in, you know, you keep that, that synergy going with them. Yeah. Then, you know, that, that's, that's awesome because sometimes the bigger crowd is just there because it's the bigger crowd. Right. Mm. Not everybody's into what you're doing. Okay. One thing that I do want to say though on this is, mm-hmm. is I hope a lot of people that are, that are, um, that are going to the, the EDM things and, you know, I hope they don't look back on it kind of like, you think of a scenario like I would look back at myself in 1989 thinking I can't believe I wore Z Cavaricis or (laughs) skids you know what I mean I don't want them to look back and say oh I can't believe I listened to that music and went and jumped around and thought it was a cool thing and you know what I mean hopefully they keep their mind open to it and you know like so and and they're mature in their sound a little bit and you know when they do dive deeper and, and things like that they still give it a chance and don't look at it like it was just the cool thing. Right yeah. Now. Yeah, it's not ICP. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Send all hate mail to David that, at passionatedj.com. <laughs> actually, the ICP is probably not a terrible parallel to draw because they do have their underground hardcore fans. Right, absolutely. You know. Yeah, no, I, I said that. And it went the same I mean, way, you know. But they also have they, a, a, a big... Um, or at least when I discovered them, I discovered them casually through other people who discovered right. them casually. And we all kind of like listened to it and and bought the albums and played them and all, you know, and we played around with it because it was funny to us. Yeah. You know, and it was, but, you know. Great so, Malenko. Right. <laughs> Everybody was coming through Great Malenko. That's the one. Yeah, exactly. You know, but then when you see what, the the hardcore underground of all of that is really all about and they take it so seriously and you're like okay well this isn't for me yeah <laughs> this is a little much <laughs> yeah i'm 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 going to move on now yeah so. this started almost as a comedy album for me and this right. is something else i don't know <laughs> right right so um yeah no i'm i'm with tony i think uh, I, like i never look back 
and and regret, you know, playing booty house. Mm. You know, I don't ever, which is now called G house, I think. So it's amazing how things are so cyclical, but it needs a new name every time it comes around. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just, I, I don't ever look back, you know, at my days as a, as a candy raver, you know, yeah. with, with any kind of disdain, like would I, you know, get dressed up in fat pants and put, you know, candy bracelets all on, all over myself now, it, you know, it, in my mid thirties? No, absolutely not. You don't still have a closet full of Jinkos. <laughs> <laughs> UFOs, thank you very much. But <laughs> mm, that wrong scene, right? right. But uh, you know, I just you know, it, it's it's all in you're you're taking part in the scene as it is at that time. Yeah. And if you're enjoying it, and if you have enjoyed it up to this point, well, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, as yeah. as things change, you know, you know, like he said, be a little bit. Uh, mature in in what your tastes are, and if your tastes change or evolve, and it means that you leave the scene, okay, well, fine. You know that happens with a bunch of people. But if you're going to stick around, don't be that hipster that's all like, ah, it was so much better, and da 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 da. Yeah. Because as much as I love the late '90s in the rave scene, you know, back back then there were people back then telling me that '92 was right. you know the, was the year that you know everybody should should have gotten into raving and all of that stuff. No, just it's never good enough if you were there first. You right, know, right, for right. Some so just enjoy enjoy the experiences that you've had and look for ways to keep enjoying it or contribute to other people enjoying it. That's that's Absolutely. that's my take on all that. Cool. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Passionate DJ Podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, what do we want to do this week for Call to Action? Follow on Twitter. I've been paying a little more twin, uh, attention. A twinchin. <laughs> been paying a little more. Paying a little more twinchin to Twitter lately. We try that again. I've been paying a little more attention to Twitter lately, and uh, we've been getting pretty good amount of subscribers on there. So if you're not following, it's at DJ with passion, not passionate DJ. It's the only one that's different. So go give us a follow on Twitter, and we'll be in touch. If you want, you can also follow me at Trip Turlington. Boom. Tony, do you tweet? I tweet at <laughs> Tony DeSero. D-E-S-A-R-O. That does it. Thanks, folks. See you next time. Later. Thanks for listening to the Passionate DJ podcast at www.passionatedj.com. Check out the fan page at facebook.com slash passionate DJ or on Twitter at DJ with passion. And always remember to keep on spinning. I don't even have a SoundCloud, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's crazy? Did Is you stop I do recording before that? I'm still going. <laughs> oh, great, great. The, the funny thing is, is I do have a SoundCloud. And because I liked one mix, it was an Adam Bayer mix or something like that, it posted to my SoundCloud. So somebody had posted my SoundCloud, and the only thing that comes up is an Adam Bayer mix. Did you do a repost? Yeah, it must have been a repost. Yeah, it was a it was a repost. But if you look up, you know, my SoundCloud, oh, that's what comes up is that Adam Bayer mix. <laughs>
So somebody posted my SoundCloud, like, check this mix out by Tony DeCero, and it was an Adam Bear mix. So it's like, <laughs> I'm not perping. Like, that's my mix. It specifically says drum code. Yeah, you're going to get a cease and desist letter from drum code. <laughs> no, right? We heard. Nothing but love, Mr. Bayer. Nothing but love.